Good morning. My name is Donald. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance, and I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another awesome privilege of being in this place with you to worship our God, to worship our God, and to know that he is faithful. From the passage of Scripture that was just read, I will be talking and I will use the subject robbery. Now, before I get started, please know this, and I will say this again that God does not want you to serve Him out of guilt, He wants you to serve Him out of your joy in him. The subject of our lesson suggests that we should focus most of our attention, uh, beginning with verse 8 through the end of the chapter. However, careful attention needs to be given to verses 6 and 7 because they deal with one of the attributes of God. And we need to constantly study the person of God. Let me say that again. We need to constantly study the person of God. Verse 6 says these words to us. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. God is unchanging, and he is unchangeable. He is unchangeable in his essence. He's unchanging in his attributes. God has always been all-knowing. And when I talk about all-knowing, I mean all-knowing. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a single molecule that exists that God does not know about. Let me say that again. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a single molecule in all of creation that God is unaware of. And so when we say that God is all-knowing, we mean that God is all-knowing. He is unchangeable in his nature. He is unchangeable in his justice, unchangeable in his character, his purpose. He is unchangeable in the principles of his rule. And God is unchangeable in his commitment to his own glory. And we see this throughout the whole Bible. Psalm 57 11 says, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Throughout the Bible, it is clearly evident that God is committed to his own glory. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 is probably the strongest statement concerning that reality. It says, For the sake of 
of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Obviously, the people of Israel uh, to whom the prophet was writing in that passage uh, deserved the wrath of God. They deserved the misery in which they found themselves. So the question is, why would God deliver them from that misery that they so deserved? Surely they deserved it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the same question can apply to you and to me today. And to this question, the answer is that it was not on their account. It was not because they deserve God's favor. It was not because they deserve any good thing from God. It is not because you and I deserve any good thing from God. It was not primarily, mainly in order that they may be happy. It was on God's own account in order to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness. His trustworthiness to the promises made to their fathers, his mercy, his compassion, his readiness to pardon, and his unchanging love. And this is the reason why he defers his anger in relation to any of the children of men. His own glory and not their happiness is the main object in view. And this is right because the glory, the honor, and the happiness of God are more important than the welfare of any of his creatures. Now be careful to note what I did not say. I did not say that the welfare of God's creatures is unimportant to him. What I am saying, and I say it dogmatically, emphatically, and without apology, that the glory, the honor, and the happiness of God is far more important than our happiness. Can anybody say amen to that? In fact, our happiness is not worthy to be compared to his glory. It just so happens that God is glorified when he brings joy and happiness into our lives. You and I are beneficiaries of the fact that God is unchanging in his commitment to his own glory. And hopefully you will see this throughout this message today. Here's why we need to understand this fact. Our welfare, your welfare, depends on the glory of God and the honor of his government and the manifestation of his perfections, which includes his unchangeableness. When God shows his grace in saving a soul from eternal damnation, it is a manifestation of his own glory. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out their transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. If God were, were, were changeable, you and I could not depend upon such grace. The pronoun I in Isaiah 43, I, is repeated to make it emphatic as in uh, verse 11, that I am the one that blots out your transgressions. 
And this speaks of the custom of keeping accounts where when a debt is paid, the charge is blotted out or canceled. My sins have been blotted out. Your sins have been blotted out. And because God is unchanging in his commitment to his own glory, God will never go back and try and rewrite your sins back in the book. Is anybody glad about that? The scriptures teach us that, that, that God has taken my sins as has cast them behind his back, has cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, and somebody said that he put up a no fishing sign. So nobody can go and fish out your sins and present them to God. If they try it, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. Why? Because they, they have been blotted out. Is God good or is God good? He canceled their sins. He forgave them, of course, when forgiveness uh, is, is, is given. Punishment could not be exacted. And so now God treats us as friends, as if we have never committed a sin against him. He says, for my own sake. What he did was not because the people deserved it. They merited no right to any good thing from the Lord, and neither do we. When God forgives sin, he's displaying his mercy, which is a reflection of his unchanging character of goodness, which is an aspect of his glory. When God saves a sinner, it is an aspect of his kindness, which is the display of his glory. I don't want to get too far on that. We're going to take a closer look at this when we study the book of Ephesians this summer. So you might even begin reading the book of Ephesians as we are looking forward to studying from that book. But it's so important that we understand this about God, that God is unchanging, and he is unchangeable, and he's making that point very clear to the children of Israel who have been defrauding themselves by not being true to what God had told them to do, and that is to bring the tithe. They were robbing God. Starting with verse 8, and I will not read that again. Will a man rob God? Is the question. John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church in Panorama City, California, in his teaching series decades ago on mastery of materialism, said that 16 out of 38 of Christ's parables deal with money. More is said in the New Testament about money than heaven and hell combined. Five times more is said about money than prayer. And while there are 500 plus verses on both prayer and faith, there are over 2,000 verses dealing with money and possessions. What this says to me, and it makes it clear to me, that God uses money and possessions to teach us and to test us. Have you ever asked someone about whether they're going to heaven and their response includes a list of things that they don't do? And, and, and among the list that they give is that, well, I don't steal and I don't rob. Well, do you rob God? Do we rob God? Christianity, by the way, is not a religion of what we don't do. It's not even about what we do. 
It is about having a relationship with the one who has already done it all for you and for me. And what we do is simply a response to his goodness, to his mercy and his grace. You see, <laughs> he already owns everything. We possess, but God owns. You and I are only stewards, managers, if you will, of the resources that God has placed into our care. The word steward, most commonly used in the New Testament, refers to a household manager. In other words, it refers to one who is entrusted with the responsibility of diligently taking care of property that belongs to another. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. To be fair to the text I just quoted, the context is not dealing with money. Instead, it is dealing with something much more valuable than money. The Apostle Paul was talking about being good stewards of the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, the matter of stewardship applies to all aspects of our living, and it speaks of a subordinate being charged with the responsibility of managing the resources that belong to someone else. As such, stewards ought to be faithful to the one who placed him in the position in whatever endeavor with which he or she has been charged. The steward owns nothing, yet he has great responsibility in managing what has been placed into his care. You've heard it said that the most important thing about you is the way you think, and ultimately, it is the way you think about God. And so in order to think correctly about stewardship under God, one must think rightly about who God is. And today, I want to reemphasize something that you have not only heard from this pulpit many times, but in your own studies, you've known this to be true, and that is, as I've said, God does not change. That means that there's nowhere, anywhere you can find where God has signed over ownership of that which he owns to anybody. He owns it all. In our Malachi passage, which we are studying today, one of the key lessons is that the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel would not, could not deter him from his unchanging purpose. And this does not mean that they could do anything they, they wanted to do and still enjoy all of the blessings of God. In the New Testament, we see this as well. Jesus told John to write a letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He says, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So God does not change. And so God has always been and he will always be the absolute owner of everything. So let us go with a firm understanding and a joyful affirmation of the truth that God is and has always been the absolute owner of everything in the world. God, ladies and gentlemen, is not a needy God. And so when we give offerings, we need to understand that God can make it without your offerings. Now, I'm going to clean that up in a minute so that you don't go away thinking, oh, I don't have to give. No, I don't need, no, no. Please, 
Stay tuned. But God is not a needy God. God does not need you, and he does not need me. But the awesome truth is that, that we can rejoice over, we can shout about is that he chose you and me. And I ask the question again, is God good or is God good? Take your pick. He does not need us, but he wants us. What an awesome thought. And we need to joyfully affirm the truth that he's the absolute owner of everything. Uh, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. For every beast of the forest is mine, says Psalm 50. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountain and everything that moves in the fields is mine. He says to the people of Israel, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. I don't need to tell you. He says to Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Long before King David, uh, long before Jesus Christ walked the earth, King David understood uh, the words of the New Testament. And one of the words that he understood is found in James 1.17, which says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadows. Therefore, our giving to support the work of the Lord should be an act of worship. In First Chronicles, near the end of that First Chronicles book in chapter 29, large sums of money had been joyfully given for the building of the temple. There was a celebration about what had taken place, but the celebration was not for people to come together and give each other high fives or pat each other on the back, but the celebration was about what the Lord had done in and through the people. You get that? If you are able to give large sums of money uh, to the work of the Lord, you should not be looking for a high five from your fellow saints. You should be praising God that you had the privilege of giving. Listen to what is written concerning what took place in that event. First Chronicles 29, verse 10, says, Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offerings to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head of all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hands to make great and to strengthen everyone. Therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. When you write that check, 
or when you go online to give, does the thought ever enter your mind, praise God for this privilege. Praise God for the check that I'm about to write. Praise God that I'm able to give this much. I say to you, it's something I said earlier, God does not want us to give out of guilt, but out of love and gratitude and trust. It is called worshiping with our giving. And so the question was asked of the people, will a man rob God? And just in case there's some woman out there saying that, hey, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Let me ask the question again. Will a man or a woman or a boy or a girl rob God? Are you robbing God? Our failure to give is a failure to worship. I want to say that again. Our failure to give and to give generously is a failure to worship. Worship is the joyful reflection back to God, the radiance of his word. And so you, if you recognize that God is the owner of everything and that which you have is only being put into your care, your possession for his glory, then when you give, you're expressing something awesome and it's called worship. And to the people of Israel, God was saying, you are robbing me in tithes and in offerings, the whole nation of you. In this passage, let me show you the goodness of God. Remember, God is not a needy God. But in this passage, we're studying God made two promises to the people of Israel. If they would repent and return to worshiping him with the resources he had placed into their care. From these promises, it is clear that God does not need their resources, nor does he need our resources, but we need to give. When God is on your side, you can do more with the 90% that you keep than the 100%, I mean 90% than you can with the 100% that you keep. Let me say that again, just in case you misunderstood. When you give 10%, or more, and you left with the 90%, you can do more with the 90% than you could with the 100%. Now, I'm not just talking theory. I'm talking what the Bible is teaching, but I'm also talking experience. And I won't go into it. Many of you heard my testimony so many times, I will not bore you with it again. Uh, but but, but uh, God is so good he does not have to bless them, but he says, he gave, gives two promises. He says, I will abundantly bless you. I will abundantly bless you. God is faithful. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and, and test me. Now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You hear that? God did not have to. Now, if God can bless them to the point that they can, it, it will overflow, does that sound like God need their money or their resources? Absolutely not. You see, it is impossible to outgive God. Now, 
I, when I was a child, I grew up, my, my parents telling me, you can't beat God giving. As a matter of fact, there's a song that says that you can't beat God's giving. I did not understand that until I became an adult. Now, I don't know why I didn't, but I just didn't. But let me tell you right here and now, it is impossible to outgive God. In order to outgive God, you have to begin with something that you didn't receive from him. Are you with me? And if everything belongs to him, then what you give is actually coming from him. And we'll see that a little bit later. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive? King David got it right. In 1 Chronicles 29, 16, it says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. You hear that? It is from your hand and all is yours. So God is saying to them, if you will return, if you will repent and do what you ought to do, then I will abundantly bless you. But then he says something else. He says, I will rebuke the devourer. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. When we rob God, we rob ourselves. The people were working hard, but their crops were not producing as they expected. The prophet Haggai, who lived during the reign of King Darius, gives the people a word from the Lord because of their unfaithfulness and failing to rebuild the house of the Lord. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to get drunk. Now, listen, don't go out and get drunk. Please, 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 please do not go out and get drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he, he who earns, earns wages to put in purses with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, back in Malachi 3, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who, notice what this, feared, not it says those who gave much, but those who feared the Lord and who esteemed his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day, I will prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him Jesus said lift your treasures in heaven why? because where your treasure is there will your heart be also now, it's not talking about laying up things that you can feast on and you can have when you get to heaven. Ultimately, you understand what he said? I am to be your treasure. Jesus wants to be your treasure. And so where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if your heart is set on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are totally in love with Jesus Christ, you don't have a problem giving. Worshiping God with 
our giving reflects three things. At least three things. There may be more. At least three. First of all, it reflects grateful acknowledgement that God owns everything, which includes everything we possess. It even includes you and me. God not only owns your possessions, he owns you. And you should praise God for that. Number two, it reflects a gratitude for the provisions we have received. Now, now, I have heard, and you probably have heard yourselves, uh, that when you talk about tithing, people are quick to say, well, isn't that an Old Testament thing? Isn't that a matter of under the law? Uh, well, yes, it was a part of the law. But keep in mind, it was, uh, the law was all to be about worship. But even before the law, in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 20, you will find these words. And I'm going to start, start at verse 17. This is where Abraham had gone and had, had taken back his possessions from the kings who had, who, had, who had taken not only possessions, but he had taken his nephew. It says, then after his return from the defeat of Chetelmeleomah and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that is creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then listen what, listen what Abraham did before the law. He gave him a tenth of all. This was not just before the law. It was more than 400 years before the law. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, comes along. And in Genesis 28, please bear with me. This is worth taking the time. Genesis 28, 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey and I take and will give, um, this is a journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar, I will be, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, all that you give me, all that you give me, not all that I get, but all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now after that, Jacob's family spent more than 430 years in Egyptian bondage. And the law was not given until they were delivered out of Egyptian bondage. So we can see long before the law came along, tithing was in the heart of those who worshipped God. They recognized that God was the owner of everything. And so, so they, were, they expressed gratitude for his provisions. But not only that, as Jacob is saying here, the third thing is that giving reflects Trusting God to meet our future needs. 
How many of you can guarantee that you're going to have a job to go to tomorrow? How many of you can guarantee that even if your job is there, you're going to be physically able to go to that job? Are you going to have the means to get there, whatever? How many of you can guarantee that you're even going to open your eyes tomorrow? Everything, every good thing comes from God. When Paul talks about giving in the, in, in the, to the saints at Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, uh, he's, he's writing to the saints, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as a proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. We can sing about how much we love and trust Jesus, but Paul was saying, put your money where your mouth is. While the New Testament does not contain a specific command to tithe, the fact that we are under grace suggests that we ought to be rolling in the aisles with joy when we have the opportunity to give. And tithing a tenth ought to be the minimum. It ought to, we should not think about giving the Lord less than 10%. And if you're really trusting God, that shouldn't be a problem. And so because God does not change, may I suggest to you that his principles of sowing and reaping also have not changed. Uh, Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will measure to you again. Doesn't that sound similar to what was said to the people of Israel way back in Malachi? Give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I will bless you abundantly to the point that you won't be able to contain it. There's another passage recorded by Luke which further demonstrates that that kind of giving, when we give with joy, it puts a smile on God's heart when we worship without giving. In this story, we learn that it is not the size of the gift, but the size of the joy in our giving. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Jesus looked up. And he saw the rich putting their offerings in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. In the eyes of God, the widow was more generous than all of those who contributed from their wealth. You see, if you understand that our security rests in Jesus, then giving becomes easy. This is why the widow who gave the two copper coins was able to give, all, and she gave it willingly, all that she had to live on, because her dependence was not on what she had, but on the one who had her. What are we trusting today? Is it the few dollars we have in our pocket or in the bank? Or are we trusting God who owns everything, who promises to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Do you believe his promises? Do you believe he's faithful? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, as he sums up people being concerned about how they're going to 
have food and clothing. He talks about the birds and how God provides. He says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things I'm paraphrasing, all the necessities of life will be provided for you. Do you believe that? God honors cheerful giving. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. God honors our giving. If cheerful giving is an act of worship, then our failure to give and to give cheerfully means that our worship is incomplete. Uh, I may say that again. If cheerful giving is an aspect of worship, then our failure to give and to give cheerfully means that our worship is incomplete. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9 says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful means hilarious, rolling in the aisles kind of joy. But notice what else he says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. If cheerful giving is an aspect of our worship, then I say again, our failure to give and to give cheerfully means that our worship is incomplete. Are you a cheerful giver? Do you get joy? Do you praise God for the privilege of giving? The song we're about to sing is a song that I think all of us should sing, not so much as a declaration, but as an aspiration. For none of us is perfect. None of us is exactly where we ought to be. So I believe God will hear the prayer in this song that you pray. Lord, I want to be at this point where I can say, I surrender all.